0: And now here's your host, Grand Canyon whitewater guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela.
1: We are in the studio with George DiGiorgio. George is one of the true global adventurers of our time. His father was Italian Count of Santo Ponte, and his mother was of Chilean, Indian, Spanish descent. George was born in a car wreck in France. On the way to Italy in 1928, George's father moved the family to Chile at the age of four where he grew up working on his father's wooden ship boatyard. In 1947, at the age of 17, George Di Giorgio joined an American expedition to Antarctica, becoming the youngest person to ever spend a year there. George lived a month alone on the Palmer Peninsula Plateau, was the first to cross the Atlantic to Pacific by dog sled with a joint British-American party, and has a mountain named after him, the Giorgio Mountain. George, thank you for joining us on the trail less traveled.
2: Thank you for asking me.
1: Where did you grow up, and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood?
2: Let me start from the beginning. Uh, my father was Italian. Nobody in his family had ever left Italy. After World War I, he spent some time in Africa capturing live animals for uh, a man in the States called Clyde Beatty. He had a wild animal show of some kind, Around 1921 or 22, he went to France and met my mother. My mother was Chilean. She was half Araucanian from a southern tribe of Indians in Chile and half Spanish. Her name was Violeta. And he met Violeta when she was 14 years old and married her three months later. In 1928, I was supposed to be born, like at the end of 28. And they were in the south of France, somewhere between Saint-Tropez. And my father said, our first child must be born in Italy. It's a matter of honor. None of our family has ever been born in another country but Italy. So, boy or girl, in Italy. So, pack up, and he went to his pharmacy to have his famous head dressing made, which was a uh, gomina, made of gum cal- tragacanth and some strawberry scent that made his hair stiff when it gelled. He was the Count of Santo Ponte. Giorgio... Donato Benedetto de Giorgio di Barbarano, Count of Santo Ponte. Pretty long, isn't it? It's in my birth certificate. (laughs) So he orders his jars of uh, head gomina. They get in the car with my mother, and they're driving. They're trying to get to Ventimiglia, which is past Monte Carlo, into Italy, and then probably go to San Remo for me to be born. Of course, they didn't know if you were going to be a boy or a girl in those times. You know, They just knew you were going to be born. And He's speeding down the Moyen-Corniche, which is the road that goes through Cannes and Nice and Monte Carlo. And after midnight of uh, December the 30th, so it was already December 31st, he crashed into a tree near a place called La Bergerette, very close to Cannes. He wanted to see if my mother was okay, and he touched the back of her head, and he felt all this stuff coming out of the back of her head, and he thought it was her brain, and he passed out. It was his head mixture that had broken and splashed on my mother's head. So he passed out in the car and I was born premature. So we never got to Italy for me to be born. And he was always not very happy about it because every time he got mad at me when I was a teenager or a young boy, he would say, Hey, cretino, you couldn't wait to be born in Italy. You were born in France. So that's how I was born. I was taken to Italy when I was already there. For some reason, he went to Algiers, and I was baptized in Algiers. I don't remember much until I was like four years old. We were back in Paris. I remember seeing the Eiffel Tower, and then we crossed over to England. We went to the circus. We went to uh, some zoo where my straw hat fell, and a seal bit it, and I cried. I remember that. Then we came to the States, where my brother Peter was born, and then to Chile, where he went to take possession of some land he had won, playing cards with a rich Chilean in Africa during one of the safaris. It was near Viña del Mar, which is a resort town near the port of Valparaiso, about seven kilometers from Valparaiso. So he settled in Chile. At that time, I spoke only French, because the common language of my mother and father was French. You know, in, in Europe, you have your language plus another one, and his was French, and my mother's was French. So that's what we spoke, and they sent me to a French Catholic school where they didn't want to teach me Spanish. They had no interest. I went on speaking French until I was eight. Then I learned Spanish. We lived in the country. Our closest neighbor was about uh, one kilometer away, little something like half a mile away. We were all the time on the beach and uh, riding horses in the woods, in the eucalyptus forests of central Chile. We had a healthy outdoor life, and, uh, of course, I was a Boy Scout. I was a cub, and being a cub, we went to the Andes Mountains and climbed mountains and uh, did all kinds of exploration and boating, and it was very uh, active. My dad started a, a boatyard, and he built only sailing ships, small sailing ships, and little tugs and barges. So I grew up in this maritime uh, environment and learned how to sail when I was 9 or 10 years old. You know, I, was, I I could steer by the compass and I knew the names of the clouds and all that. I did a lot of sailing. That was my youth in Chile and horseback riding. We used to go to school on horseback.
1: And, George, you said that there was so much adventure in your childhood. Sailing was a norm. Mountaineering was a norm, so you thought that all other kids grew up with I such did. an adventurous life. I did. I never life.
2: thought that other kids did things different, you know. I thought that every, every boy knew how to row a dinghy. Uh, any kid knew how to ski. Any kid uh, could go sailing and steer by the compass. It was a normal thing for me, and I found out later in life that it wasn't.
1: Georges, please tell us about what it's like to grow up in a wooden ship boatyard in the 1930s.
2: I was a little boy, but I grew up watching the shipwrights go and pick up the frames. They would build custom boats that had grown frames where the shipwrights would go to the woods with a pattern and see how the tree grew, and then they would bring in that piece and cut it in half and have the starboard and the port frame in one. So that made the boats very special because it was naturally curved wood, not steam bent. The keels were made of eucalyptus, which were felled, when the sap was down at certain phases of the moon, then they dug the main rabbit line where the king plank goes. It's the main plank that starts from the keel when they start planking the boat. They would cut the eucalyptus, and when the, it was carved, they would throw it back in the river, and that did something to the wood. It cured. It was I don't know what it did, but that was the way the old shipbuilders, all the fasteners were forged. They didn't use, like, nails you buy at a hardware store. Everything was forged from scrap the stem piece which is the front of the boat the bow was one piece natural the stem which is the back part of the boat was also one piece so very very wonderful custom boats and what i did i would draw the lines of the ship real size you had a thing called the table offsets where you nailed nails every so many so many centimeters and then you you put a baton on them to give the natural curve. So you ended up drawing all the components of the ship, of the sail ship, natural size. So I did that on... That was my vacation, working for the Italian owner. Who was your father? Who was my father. (laughs) And how old were you when you were working in the shipyard? I must have been 12 when I started. 12 when I started, then... uh, This went on until I left for Antarctica in 1947.
1: Georges, is there a moment for you from your early childhood adventures where you learned a lesson after having a close encounter with death or weather? Yes, I
2: have often thought when I was a Cub Scout, we went to climb the highest mountain on the coastal range of the Andes. It's called La Campana. It's an easy climb, nothing technical, just walk up. There was a a refuge on top, you know, a place where you could stay. And I went with the priest who was my teacher, a scoutmaster, and about 15 scouts. We got to the summit, and then we camped in that refuge. And the kids this morning said, hey, we don't have a sled. So they took a ladder that was sitting there, and they started gliding down the snow surface on the ladder. And one of the kids put his foot between two rungs of the ladder and he broke his feet in about two places. So the priest didn't know what to do. The scoutmaster didn't know what to do. They said, we'll try to go and find some help. So they left us alone on the mountain, Mm -hmm. the kids alone. The oldest one must have been 13, and we stayed up there, and a snowstorm started. And it took about four days for them to come back. In the meantime, the injured kid, we had splintered his leg because uh, one of them knew what to do from our boy scout manual or something like that. And it was kind of scary because we didn't know if he was going to live or not... ...and if we were going to die because nobody was coming back from us. We are in the
1: studio with George DiGiorgio. George is one of the true global adventurers of our time. George, let's play a song. Let's play a song that reminds you of your early childhood. Your father was Italian Count of Santa Ponte... ...and your mother was of Chilean-Indian-Spanish descent. Now you were born in a car wreck in France on the way to Italy in 1928... Let's play a song that reminds you of maybe this time when you were still in your mother's
2: womb and your father driving fast to Italy so you can be born in Italy. Yes, I always thought about my dad racing like mad down the south coast of France on the Mayenne Corniche trying to get to the border. And for some reason, I kept thinking about funiculi, funicula. ta 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 Let's get to the border and let's
0: have this baby born. Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling.
1: We're in the studio with George DiGiorgio. In 1947, at the age of 17, George DiGiorgio joined an American expedition to Antarctica, becoming the youngest person to ever spend a year there. George lived a month alone on the Palmer Peninsula Plateau, was the first to cross the Atlantic to Pacific by dog sled with a joint British-American party, and has a mountain named after him, De Giorgio Mountain. George, you met Hubert Wilkins, the first man to fly in Antarctica, when you were around six or seven years old. You said that he is your outdoor adventure mentor.
2: Please tell us about him. Yes, Mandela, he is. Uh, like you said, when I was uh, about seven years old, Sir Hubert Wilkins was coming back from Antarctica. He had flown a Northrop Gamma plane and was the first man to fly in Antarctica. And my dad, who was always interested in the explorers and mountain climbers, asked him and some of his crew to come to our home for dinner. So the children were introduced to him, you know, this is Mr. Wilkins. And he had a goatee, and he was an explorer, and I was a Cub Scout, you know. And I heard that he had been exploring this part of the world that was so frozen and covered with snow. And so I started dreaming about Antarctica. Actually, he gave us two cans of pemmican he had developed for survival. There was 5,500 calories in one can. And my dad said, this is a souvenir from Sir Hubert. Just never touch it. It's in the pantry, but don't eat it. But when I went on my next outing with the Boy Scouts, I took and ate the whole can and got really sick. I was always thinking about Hubert Wilkins and Antarctica, which I thought was flat. He had adventured under the Arctic Ocean in a submarine and for some reason after the failure of his submarine trip on the submarine, which he named by the way Nautilus also one of the Nautiluses in submarine history, he approached the Northrop Company, which was an airplane manufacturer, and they gave him a gamma. Alpha, Beta, Delta. Mm-hmm. This was the Gamma plane. And this is what he flew in Antarctica. And he was on his way back from his historic first flight in Antarctica. Many people think it's Admiral Byrd. He didn't. He flew after. That's when I first saw him when I was about seven years old, never dreaming that 10 years later I would contact him and eventually me, myself, go to Antarctica and learn how to fly.
1: In 1947, at the age of 17, you joined an American expedition to Antarctica, becoming the youngest person ever to spend a year there. You lived a month alone on the Palmer Peninsula, Patel. Tell us about this expedition in 1947.
2: The expedition in 1947 was going to Antarctica under the command of Commander Finn Ronnie, who was the son of the tent maker of the Amundsen expedition, which reached the South Pole in 1912, you know, a month before Scott. And uh, he had selected his personnel with the aid of Hubert Wilkins. I had written a letter to Hubert Wilkins, and I was told that this was an all-American expedition, but I could visit the ship. I visited the ship. I talked to Commander Ronnie. He asked me if uh, if I was American. And I said yes. I figured if I say I'm Chilean, he's not going to take me because there were 28,000 applicants here in the United States. So I said, yes, I'm American. He said, well, your English is so-so, not too good. I said, well, we've lived here for a while, all the time thinking Chileans are not African or Asians or Europeans. They're American. So I said, yes, I am. I went home, packed, put a little Chilean flag in my rucksack, went back on the ship, and we took off for Antarctica. We left Valparaiso, Chile, in early 1947, and got to power land a few weeks later, we had made some stops in Chile in Punta Arenas and then uh, proceeded south across the Drake Passage and we arrived at Marguerite Bay in early 1947. We found that, that the British expedition was using our base and the American flagpole, so Commander Ronnie took a few of us ashore and ordered us to lower the British the Union Jack and hoist the American flag. That was our introduction to Antarctica. It was a diplomatic encounter with the British government. We occupied our base. It was a very eventful year. We arrived there during the summer of 1947 in Marguerite Bay, which is south of the Polar Circle. We occupied a base that had been abandoned in 1939. We brought spare generators, three planes, 40-some dogs, Alaskan malamutes and Siberian huskies, Uh, a lot of modern equipment, and it was just only about a year and a half after the end of Second World War, so all our clothing was provided by the Quartermaster General of the Army. You know, heavy wool pants, long johns, no synthetics of any kind. We were all volunteers except for the commander, the chief engineer, and the radio operator, which was required because this was a warship loaned to the expedition through an act of Congress, the Port of Beaumont. So they were searching for what abilities we had, what were we were going to do when we got there. First, we manned the ship. I was a quartermaster on the ship because I could steer pretty good. Uh, when we got to Antarctica, they said, well, we need dog sled mushers. We need mushers. So Dr. McLean and myself and four others raised our hand, and we became mushers. We have only two pilots and three planes. The pilots had been flying over the hump, you know, and uh, the mountains of the Himalayas and all that with General Claire Chennault, the flying tigers, and they had a lot of experience flying over snowy mountains and uh, stuff like that, but he said, we want several of you to learn how to fly. So I volunteered to fly a small single-engine plane, an L5 Stinson, canvas wing, and we had two other planes. We had to learn how to use our radios because uh, we wouldn't be allowed to use radios if we couldn't transmit Morse code at a certain speed. Then we were qualified to use the radios. We had to learn navigation because our compasses were not much useful. Uh, We were too close to the magnetic pole for the compasses to be useful, so we had to learn celestial navigation. We learned a lot of things, things we'd never heard about before we learned there. I became a, a musher and a flyer. Actually, I had never driven a car, and I had a lot of hours flying before I ever drove a car. Wow. Tell us about celestial navigation. Celestial navigation, although we didn't have a compass on the handlebars of the sleds, it gave us more or less an idea we were going south or west or east or whatever. We did celestial navigation. We saw the spherical triangle, you know. We took sights of stars or planets and the sun or the moon and then we used our tables to get a line of position. We needed an artificial horizon because we couldn't see the ocean when we were up on the polar plateau, so we used a Fairchild sextant, which has an artificial horizon built in, and it averages the readings. Those were developed during the war for navigators on bombers. So we used all that war surplus equipment to navigate. The wheel in the back of the sled, that was like those things you have on bicycles And then it gave us a fair idea of how much we had traveled, the equivalent of a ship's log. Georges, we're in this trail studios,
1: which are warm and nicely lit, but I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and take us to Antarctica. Take us there. What is it like? How cold is it? What does it feel like on your face, the air there? what does it sound like? What is the night sky like?
2: Yeah, well, we're in Montana when it gets pretty cold sometimes. But Antarctica is special because it is always below freezing, It's a strange thing. You know, in the Arctic, you have an Arctic thing where the animals come out and plants grow, and and not such a thing in Antarctica. I think during the whole year, we may have had 15 days when the temperature went to about 33 or 34. That was it. It is always cold, always cold. The Earth is flattened at the poles, and saw the clouds are also closer to the ground. So you had cirrus clouds that here we would find at 25,000 feet. We had them there like at 7. So many times when we were on the polar plateau, we were very close to these cirrus clouds that are formed by ice crystals. So it's a totally different thing. We saw the southern lights, Aurora Australis, which is like your northern lights all the time. We had long nights in winter, extremely long days in summer when we had lived by the watch because you couldn't tell what time of the day it was the sun was up almost 24 hours a day actually it was up more than 24 hours a day during the summer solstice and the sun didn't come up in winter during the winter solstice we had to get used to all that you know we we lived by the hour of the clock we traveled doing um, what we call dead reckoning and then we traveled by doing celestial navigation It was all uh, quite a bit of um, new experiences. And the main thing was mushing, where we had our dogs, and we got to know our dogs like, you know, your brother. We knew when they were going to act up, when they were going to turn against the leader, and we'd jump in between them and stop them. And it was pretty interesting. Our dogs were a matter of life or death, because if we were uh, 100 miles from base, which were many times, I was 200 miles off base, and if our dogs left us that was it how would we where was our sled with our kerosene stoves and our pemmican and our supplies and our tent so our dogs were vital
1: george you were the first to cross from the atlantic to the pacific by dog sled with a joint british american party and had a mountain named after you de mountain what was it like to expedition with dogs in
2: antarctica and what were the dogs behaviors like I was stationed at the meteorological station on the Polar Plateau. And we had been there for so long, uh, there was a British member of the expedition also with me. And it snowed and snowed and snowed and snow compacted in what we call neve. And we kept having to set up the tent again and raise our meteorological instruments off the ground. And eventually we decided it would be much easier to live below the snow level. So we dug our way around and lived underground. But the problem is that the planes couldn't see us because the wind was blowing and the snow was drifting. So they decided to come to get us with dog sleds and teams. It was a British-American combined operation. So I was there one day when we heard somebody lifting the tarp that was the tunnel to get out of our underground place. They said, we've come here to get you and bring you home. But there's a little problem. We're not going straight home. We're on the Pacific side. We're going to cross Palmer Peninsula and the mountains and go to the Atlantic side of Antarctica and wait for a British team coming from Hope Bay. So we took off and we had to find a way to cross the mountains that were the spine of Palmer Land. It's like a prolongation of the Andes Mountains. They sink at Cape Horn, rise up again in Palmerland. And it took us many days to get to a place where we crossed cross the mountains and then land on the other side and wait for the British at a place called the Three Noon Attack. The Three Noon Attack, I think, means three island in Eskimo. And we were supposed to wait for the British three days, and we didn't see them. And then we waited one more day, and we were getting short on food and things like that. Then we saw the British coming, and their dog team was smaller because they had eaten one. So we joined forces with them, and we came back and crossed the mountains again. It was a little bit easier because we knew where we had crossed, so we knew the route back. When we were coming down from the plateau and we could see the ocean, it was frozen as far as the eye could see. And this was, I think, January of 1948, January or early February. So we saw the ocean frozen as far as we could see. We got down to the base, and the commander told us he thought we were going to have to spend another year. And we had enough provisions and equipment to spend another year down there. Fortunately, Admiral Byrd sent two icebreakers to rescue us, the Edisto on the Burton Island. One lived from San Francisco Harbor, the other one from Boston Harbor. They rendezvoused at Cape Horn, and the Burton Island got to us first, and they broke the ice. We didn't think they were going to be able to make it. I mean, They said the icebreakers are at the horizon, so we hitched our dogs and went to greet them with our dogs and sleds. And we ran next to them, and we couldn't keep up with them. They just came in and broke through many feet of ice and broke a path, then towed us out. We had to work quite a bit on the ship because we had drained all the water tanks so they wouldn't freeze. We had to take any batteries ashore. We had to make the ship seaworthy again. So they led us to Peter the First Island, and we got the ship ready to go and go back to South America.
1: What is the ice breaking like in front of those ships? How do you do it?
2: These ships have a special shape on the bow. that's like a spoon. They were very powerful engines, and they hit the ice, and then they immediately flood the forward compartments with thousands of gallons of water very fast. So it's a combination of straddling the ice and then crushing it with a heavy bow, they don't go too fast. They they went faster than our dogs, but not too fast. In
1: 1947, when you were 17 and you joined an American expedition to Antarctica, becoming the youngest person to ever spend a year there, you were also the first to cross from the Atlantic to Pacific by dog sled with a joint British-American party. Is it true that the expedition also was accompanied by two women, the first time women had wintered in Antarctica?
2: Yes, it was. We had two women in the expedition, Jenny Darlington and Jackie Ronnie. They were both very young. Originally, they were not supposed to go on the expedition. They were supposed to go only as far as Panama. Then in Panama, they volunteered to do the paperwork and uh, contact the radio stations and things like that. When they got to Valparaiso, they said, well, can we go as far as Punta Arenas, which is the southernmost city in Chile, and all of a sudden they were on the way to Antarctica for a year and became, like you said, the first women to winter on the mainland of Antarctica. In previous years, some whalers' wives had wintered in Deception Island, which is in the South Shetland Islands in Antarctica, but never on the mainland.
1: George, you returned to Antarctica the next year as a technical advisor for a Chilean government polar expedition. George, because you were Chilean, did your presence secure the Chilean claim to Antarctica
2: in a funny way, it did Chile had a claim on Antarctica as did the British and the Argentinians, and all the sectors overlapped a little bit and Chile was adamant that King Charles V had said that Spain and then the colonies etc., were the owners, so to speak, all the way to the South Pole, although the South Pole hadn't been reached or anything. so when I came back from the first time from the American expedition. I had nothing to show that I was Chilean. I didn't have an ID card. I didn't have a passport or anything. So the Chilean government took me to the presidential palace of Gabriel González Videla who was the president then. And then they summoned a photographer to take my picture and make me an ID showing I was Chilean. And that's how it was officially Chilean then. They wrote me a letter and asked me if I would go to Antarctica as a technical advisor.
1: George, you were recently featured in a documentary on the expedition to Antarctica called The Ends of the Earth. What can an adventurer expect to find in Antarctica?
2: Well, there's lots to find in Antarctica. First of all, it's a different kind of geography. It's snow-covered mountains and other mountains barren and you can see the metals showing through, you know, the copper and the iron. It's always cold. It's very high. It's, uh, many people think Asia is the highest continent average. It's Antarctica. Asia has a lot of lowland. Antarctica is the highest average continent in the world. It is devoid of any animal life practically, apart from the penguins and the seals and some cape pigeons who fly from South Africa and squawgulls. Then in winter, there's nothing. So you're not going to see a fox. You're not going to see a wolf. You're not going to see a reindeer. You're not going to meet an Eskimo. There's nobody in that huge continent. And it's so silent at night. You can hear the voice of others a mile away. The Southern Lights, Aurora Australis, it's surreal.
1: Did you ever get lonely? And how did you deal with it if you did? How did you deal with being isolated?
2: You get sort of lonely. You think about your homeland and you think about your friends who went to school with you and you've got nobody to go out camping with and uh, you're totally on your own. Your life is in your own hands. In those times, nobody was going to come and rescue you if anything happened. So you felt pretty far away from your natural habitat. Lonely but beautiful. We
1: are in the studio with George DiGiorgio. George, let's play a song. Let's play a song that reminds you of Antarctica and this
2: discovery of this new world. New World Symphony, Antonin Vorschach. Because the second time I went to Antarctica, we were given an advance paycheck, and I spent almost all of it buying a Victrola, which is hand-wound, you know, the old 78 record player, And I went to see what music I was going to take and I couldn't figure out what to take and so I bought the New World Symphony. And so I always remember it. I also remember that I didn't take enough needles because you had to change the needle every other side of the record.
0: It's The Trail I've Traveled with Mandela.
1: We are in the studio with George Giorgio. George is one of the true global explorers of our time. George, tell us about flying over the Andes in the mid 1930s when the airplanes had to maneuver through the mountain passes.
2: Sometime around 1935, when I was about seven years old, my father, who was a private pilot, owned a Messerschmitt German plane with another fellow pilot. And they had flown to Argentina and had a crash landing in Argentina. So my mother tells me, Georgie, we're flying to see your dad in Buenos Aires. And we had to fly. They used to pick you up at home when they flew you in those times in 1935. They picked us up, then they weighed us at the airport to see where we were going to sit. And they put us in a Ford trimotor plane. It was a three-engine plane. And from what I understand, it was hard to maneuver because you had one central engine and the propellers all turned the same way or something, but it is also very hard to fly but very sturdy. We boarded the plane. The plane had no pressurized cabin, of course. I think they could fly up to about 8,000 feet or something like that. I can't remember, but it was when you still had oxygen. The heat was provided from heat borrowed from the exhaust of the engines. Only precaution they had in case you got airsick was a brown paper bag in front of your seat. And the seats were wicker, like woven baskets. And it was a very long flight. They took off from Santiago, which is probably at about 3,400 feet or 3,500 feet above sea level. Then they had to fly through passes in the Andes Mountains. They couldn't make it over the mountains, of course. They had not enough ceiling. And so you could see the mountains each side of the, you know, right and left-hand side of the plane. And then you, they couldn't make it all the way to Buenos Aires. They didn't have the range, so we had to land in Mendoza in Argentina, on the west side of Argentina. And we taken to a hotel where we could have a meal and rest for a while. Then they would pick us up and take us to the plane and fly the rest of the way. The total time between the time we left Santiago to the time we got to Buenos Aires was about 10 hours which I think now a JIT can do, I don't know, in about two or three hours. And so it was quite an adventure.
1: George, you are fluent in three languages, French, Spanish, and English. What's your favorite inspirational quote in Spanish?
2: It would be, por la razón o la fuerza, by reason or strength, which is the motto of the Chilean coat of arms.
1: George, how do you go about learning a new language?
2: I think the sooner, the earlier, the better. Like a child seems to absorb a language without having to know how to read or write or study any grammar at all, no verbs, no rules of grammar or or anything else. They just learn the language and think in it. I think once you can think in that language, you know it. Not if you have to translate and then you think in Spanish and then translate it to English and then it comes out different. And I think as you grow up, at least for me, I tried to learn Russian and I couldn't, but I was 50. So I think the earlier your parents teach you a language, uh, the better. The говоришь про Duh. <laughs> we're in the studio with
1: George DiGiorgio, and we're going to be back next week with the second part of my interview with George DiGiorgio. George, how do you handle fear?
2: Hmm. How do you handle fear? I think first is think, don't panic, be prepared. If you panic, things can happen, then if you just sit and give it a little thought. And then apply your knowledge you can have of the outdoors or swimming or mountain climbing or different situations. Be prepared.
1: George, what has been your favorite adventure so far?
2: My favorite adventure, I think, was the first time we sailed across the Pacific from the west coast of South America to Tahiti. That was a big adventure. because it was so far, it was 5,000 miles. We spent 30 days without seeing land.
1: We are in the studio with George Giorgio. George, thank you so much for coming into the studio and doing this interview. We're going to continue this interview for next week's show. Let's end this show with three outdoor adventure
2: tips. Well, as a sailor... Having sailed for more than 30 years, I always carried a knife. A knife was very, very important in case we had something happen with a sheet or a halyard where if you didn't cut the line on time, you could have the boat capsize and lose everything or a tow line or whatever. So a knife always, I'm kind of superstitious about knives. Even when I catch a bus, I carry a knife. The second one would be a compass. I always had a compass. And then it was nice to know where north was. Nice to know that if you went west, you came back east. It was kind of a friend. The compass was, you know, something so ancient, invented by the Chinese and so useful. So a compass would be number two. Be prepared. Be prepared. Don't panic. You know, just think. If you're in a bad situation, think and then decide what the safe course of action is. Siempre listo. Siempre listo. All is prepared. George,
1: let's end the show with a song. What song would you like to end the show with?
2: Cielito lindo. It goes something like, Y ese lunar que tienes junto a la boca, No se lo des a nadie, Que a mí me toca, que a mí me toca. The song in English goes more or less, That beauty mark you have on your face, Don't give it to anybody my little heaven, because it belongs to me.
1: Namaste. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Travelled, an adventure series dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the planet. Subscribe to the free Trail Less Travelled podcast on iTunes, and check out traillesstraveled.net to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. I want to thank my guest for this week, George DiGiorgio. George is one of the true global adventurers of our time. His father was Italian count of Santo Ponte, and his mother was of Chilean, Indian, Spanish descent. George was born in a car wreck in France on the way to Italy in 1928. George's father moved the family to Chile at the age of four, where he grew up working on his father's wooden ship boatyard. In 1947, at the age of 17, George DiGiorgio joined an American expedition to Antarctica, becoming the youngest person to ever spend a year there. George lived a month alone on the Palmer Peninsula Plateau was the first to cross the Atlantic to Pacific by dog sled with a joint British-American party, and has a mountain named after him, the Giorgio Mountain. The expedition also was accompanied by two women. This is the first time women had wintered in Antarctica. Because George was Chilean, his presence secured the Chilean claim to Antarctica. So George returned the next year as technical advisor for a Chilean government polar expedition. He was recently featured in a documentary on the expedition to Antarctica called The Ends of the Earth. Mi nombre es Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. Every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how the community can start adventuring in the same fashion. My adventure tip this week pertains to how you may easily remove sticky pine sap from your gear. Simply use warm water and mineral oil to remove stubborn pine sap from fabric. That's it for this week of Missoula, but until next week, please get out there and shred that gnar. Because, you know, the thing about the gnar is, it doesn't shred itself.